Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, we welcome Janine Cummins, whose thriller American Dirt is creating something of a stir. We should probably warn you that the novel opens with a violent crime at a family barbecue, so in this episode we'll be talking about material some listeners may find distressing. But the grief and trauma that underpin this novel and Cummins' own remarkable story also got us thinking about how traumatic events can fuel great writing. We'll be discussing that later. But first... After a best-selling memoir of a murder that tore her family apart, A Rip in Heaven, Cummins turned to fiction with The Outside Boy and The Crooked Branch. Her latest novel, American Dirt, comes on a wave of enthusiasm from writers such as Stephen King and John Grisham and tackles one of the greatest issues of our age. A brutal murder sends Lydia Perez and her eight-year-old son Luca on a journey from Mexico to the US, a journey filled with enough high-octane action that the film rights have already been snapped up. But as an American citizen who grew up in Maryland and lives comfortably in New York City, does she have the right to tell this story? When she came to the studio to talk with Claire, she spoke about crime, grief and her sudden decision to write this challenging novel. It's set in Mexico. You're mm-hmm. American. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us why you decided to tell a story set in Mexico. Oh, well, actually, I resisted telling a story set in Mexico for quite some time. I knew that I wanted to write about immigration and migration issues in the Americas. But I I wasn't... I, I actually wrote two failed drafts of this book, I confess. I did that. Um, and the reason they were failed drafts was because I was trying not to set a book entirely in Mexico. I was trying to write about characters who were more familiar to me So the first couple of drafts had a whole lot of extraneous people like Border Patrol agents and people who encounter immigrants and people who interact with immigrants and also some immigrants, but it wasn't working. And I kept in frustration, stopping and starting. And at one stage, I just realized that I was trying to use an inappropriate lens to tell this story. 
and that the only people who really mattered in the story, in fact, were Lydia and Luca and Soledad and Rebecca. And explain who those characters are. They're the migrants. So Lydia and Luca, mother and son, who, yes. who, who witness a terrible sort of destruction of their family and mm-hmm. have to escape very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other migrants from different country that, Correct, that yeah. they encounter on the top of a train, more or less. Right, yeah. Um, you know, I decided to structure the book where Lydia and Luca are really the, the main characters, the two main protagonists. And I wanted... Part of the reason that I wanted to tell this story was because I come from, like most people in the United States, I come from a family of mixed heritage, of mixed background, um, some immigrants, some who have been in the United States forever, for well, not forever, but for a long time. And my grandmother was from Puerto Rico, and she was a woman who came from a really wealthy family, was very well-to-do, was very sort of posh and glamorous in Puerto Rico. And then she came to the United States and had a hard landing. She was like suddenly Puerto Rican, you know. And she was sort of angry about that for her entire adult life. And it had serious ramifications for her eight children, the oldest of whom was my father. And so I understood that there's something really damaging about the way white Americans reduce immigrants in their mind, um, the stereotypes that we place on these people. My grandmother's experience, you know, her new neighbors were so reductionist in their views of what she was supposed to be as a Puerto Rican. And I understood also sort of in my DNA that this is what we're doing to the migrants at our border right now, that we are painting them all with the same brush, that we tend to think of them all as one thing, as a sort of homogenous rural, illiterate, poor, brown person. And in fact, that is not what they are. You know, they come from all different kinds of backgrounds, different countries, different languages, different socioeconomic situations, different experiences with violence and the cartels or gangs in their home countries. Um, and they're all traveling for their own reasons. And, and they're, they're individuals, you know. So that was a story that I really wanted to explore. And um, so to that end, it was important for me that Lydia be representative of a migrant story, but not necessarily the typical or stereotypical migrant story that we're used to hearing. And so I wanted her to be a middle class person that my readers could, they could become familiar with and recognize themselves and their own experiences in Lydia's life because I think I had a sort of ulterior motive that I wanted. <laughs> I wanted I wanted readers to be able to know Lydia and understand not only what it means to be a migrant, but also that any one of us in these times could become a migrant. So we meet her first in her bookshop. Yes. Um, she's and and that she has this extremely creepy encounter with with this fabulous figure you've invented who who is a sort of sentimental bespectacled you know could you she Lydia thinks he could in another life have been an academic or could have been mm-hmm. any number of things but she doesn't really know what he is but he's a a, a gang leader mm-hmm. will you introduce us will you would you read us a little bit when she first encounters him in the bookshop yes i would love to 
So when Javier approached Lydia as she stood behind the register perusing catalogs, when she lifted his selections from the counter to ring them up, she was astonished to find not one, but two of her secret treasures among them. Heart You Bully You Punk by Leah Hager Cohen and The Whereabouts of Aeneas McNulty by Sebastian Barry. Oh my God, Lydia whispered. Is something wrong? She looked up at him, realizing she hadn't actually looked at him yet, despite their cheerful banter earlier. He was fancily dressed for a Tuesday morning in dark blue trousers and a white guayabera, an outfit more suitable for Sunday mass than a regular workday, and his thick black hair was parted sharply and combed to one side in an old-fashioned style. The heavy black plastic frames of his glasses were similarly outdated, so retro they were almost chic again. His eyes swam hugely behind the thick lenses, and his mustache quivered as she considered him. These books, she said, they're two of my favorites. It was an insufficient explanation, but all she could muster. Mine too, the man across from her said. The mustache hitched ever so slightly with his hesitant smile. You've read them before? She was holding heart, you bully, you punk, with both hands. Well, only this one, he gestured to the one she was clutching. She looked down at its cover. You read in English? She asked, in English. I try, yes, he said. My English isn't fluent, but it's close, and this story is so delicate. I'm sure there were things I missed the first time around. I wanted to try again. Yes, she smiled at him, feeling slightly crazy. She ignored this feeling, plowed recklessly ahead. When you're finished, you could come back. We could discuss it. Oh, he nodded eagerly. You have a book club here? Her mouth opened slightly. No, she laughed. Just me. All the better. See, it's, it's pretty creepy. It's pretty creepy. <laughs> but also, um, there. although this is a thriller in, in some ways, um, it is. it also has a huge amount of texture to it. So I went back and I was thinking, oh, yeah. The um, uh, um, Owen McNulty. I didn't. I don't know the other book. What is the story of Owen McNulty? So I went back and I googled oh, Owen McNulty, and I you find that. out it's about a fugitive mm-hmm. who has revealed who 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 is who is being hunted down because he's thought to know the killers of a of an Irish um, policeman That's who's, right. who is a colleague of his. Yes. So there are all sorts of there are all sorts of things in the background of this story. So a huge amount of context. Yeah. Thank you for noticing that. That's I'm not even sure I noticed that when I <laughs> You just chose it because it was one of your favorite books. Yes, yes. I love that. I love Sebastian Barry. I've read everything he's ever written and he's just such a beautiful writer. I love the texture and the nuance of his writing as well. And these were two books that in fact I felt were sort of underappreciated and I felt about these books the way Lydia feels about them. So I thought to give them a little shout out in the book. You, you talk a lot about the responsibilities of journalism at the beginning. Oh, yeah. um, she, Lydia's husband is a journalist who's exposing the cartels. Mm-hmm. And she, she tells him off for, for sort of overemphasizing the violence. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the fact is that being a journalist in Mexico is a very deadly endeavor. It's an incredibly dangerous place to tell the truth. And I think... The statistic that I read most recently was that it was the most dangerous country in the world to be a journalist, tied perhaps with Syria, more deadly than Afghanistan. 
And the reason is because of the impunity of the cartels. So the men and women who are doing the work on the ground of trying to expose the truth about the violence of the cartels, um, they are sort of target number one, um, enemy number one of the cartels. And because the unsolved murder rate in Mexico is something like 96%, they can murder any journalist they want to without any sort of legal repercussions. And um, so they often do. And I don't know that Sebastian, who is the husband of Lydia, is actually in the business of exaggerating the violence. I think he's just telling the truth. And Lydia understands that this is an incredibly perilous thing for him to do, not only for himself, but for their entire family. And, you know, when they were young and before they had a family, it was a thing, his sort of idealism and his dedication to his principles was a thing that she really admired about him. And one of the things I think that made her fall in love with him, but as they age together and they have a child, Lydia reassesses those things and and I think feels like many, many mothers would that her child is more important than her principles. And Sebastian does not necessarily share that view. That's just the backdrop and that's the beginning of the story. The heart of the story is you could see it as a love story of a mother and her child. Mm -hmm. And it's told from both of their perspectives. They're, the perspectives are interwound with, this, with this, the, the representation of them. Yes, I think that um, motherhood, since I became a mother myself 12 years ago, is tends to be the lens through which I get most quickly to the empathy that I want to feel in a novel. And in this instance, I had, this book took me a long time to write. I was researching and writing for about five years. And so when I started writing the novel, I had my older daughter was about Luca's age. And by the time I finished it, my younger daughter was about Luca's age. So it was a wonderful thing to have right there in my very own kitchen and living room every night, a sort of bright, precocious little voice in my head that um, sounded an awful lot like Luca. So it made it easier for me to write him, I think. You say it took you a long time to write. You were writing before the idea of building a wall on the border oh, came up. Yes. So yeah. has, have things got worse or better or are they just the same as they were when you started writing? Exponentially worse. Exponentially worse. Um, I think for Latinx people in the United States, we could sort of smell the ill wind coming. Um when I started writing and when I started researching in 2013, I was aware that there were these sort of dueling narratives in the national conversation about migrants and particularly about Latino migrants. Um, from the political right, there was this talk about them just sort of being an invading mob of scary criminals. And of course, that rhetoric got much, much worse in the ensuing years. And from the left, there was a sort of equally, maybe not equally disturbing, but a, a very paternalistic sort of dismissive sense that like, oh, these poor people, these poor brown people, they need our help. And in neither narrative do you have people giving migrants credit for being human beings with agency 
with the capacity to make their own decisions, to save their own lives, to save their children, to contribute to our country, to contribute to our culture. You know, we're not, we're not treating them as humans. They don't need our pity or our disdain. They just need sort of fundamental human empathy. They just need to be treated like human beings. And, and if we could come together on that point, which is a point that I think from the right and left, anyone can get to that point. Um, I, I hope, I feel that that is the way to forge ahead with improving the situation on the ground for these people. In your author's note, do you make the point that your husband was an undocumented migrant when you met? Yes. So you, it's not just your grandmother. You do have an investment in this. I do, yeah. We lived for over a decade um, before we were married with the difficulties of being an undocumented person and loving an undocumented person. And I can just tell you that it's an objectively terrifying way to live. It's not something that anyone would choose if they had other options available to them. You know, it's, um, it's not a, it's, it's, it's a thing that stays with you every hour of every day. You're just 100% cognizant that at any moment, it, it could all be taken away. At any moment, if he gets pulled over for a broken taillight, he could get deported, he, you know, and it's over. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's to be sure I have a dog in the race or I had a dog in the race. And then the other um, thing you talk about in your author's notice is um, the a Rip in Heaven, which was your memoir, which was of uh, the terrible murder of two of your cousins mm-hmm. and that and and how that's given you inve- an investment in, in talking in, in discussing characters who've suffered in what you call inconceivable hardship. Yeah, I mean, I think the engine of all of my books, even though they're all quite different, the catalyst always seems to be some kind of social injustice or something that I'm really angry about in general. Um, and, you know, with that book, my first book, which was the memoir, A Rip in Heaven, I was just really angry about the fact that, you know, my two cousins were murdered my in a very violent, They were horrific, thrown off a bridge. Yes, after being gang raped. Um, and my brother was with them. And he survived. He was the only survivor of the crime. And he was beaten quite badly. And then when he managed to survive by the grace of God, and he got out of the Mississippi River, and he went to the police to get help, they didn't believe him. And they arrested him. And they beat him up. And um, eventually, my brother was completely exonerated and they found the four men who had done this thing and they all came in with evidence on their persons and pointed the finger at each other and more or less corroborated my brother's story. Three of them were convicted and one turned state's evidence and testified against the other three and was also convicted. And so I guess justice prevailed or something, but <laughs> but ultimately, two of the men got the death penalty. And in reality, what that meant for my family was that those two men were able to leverage the voice of victimhood. And they were able to get people on their side. 
And it further victimized my family. Our experience with capital punishment in the United States was such that I went from being someone who had sort of ambivalent, mixed feelings about it to being someone who fully does not believe in it based almost entirely on my own personal experiences as a homicide survivor and what it did to my family to have the death penalty be the thing that was on the table. But that's so un- that's such an uncommon story. It's yet. not. I mean, sorry, not, yeah. yeah. That's the thing is that people think it's uncommon and people, I cannot tell you the number of times people lashed out at me as if I had anything to do with these men being on death row, as if it was my fault. Because you were part of this, the, the Be- victim's family. Right. Uh, you know, and oh, it was just so frustrating. That was so frustrating. And that was a very big part of why I wanted to write their story, because I wanted to recast the sort of public conversation around what was what was being talked about around this case. It felt so unfair to me that these men were able to garner the sympathy of good people after what they did to my family. And so that book really was a battle cry for victims' rights. It was a love letter to my cousin, my cousins. Um, and I, you know, I hope it was a voice for my brother. And And to be sure, it also set me on a path as a writer. I knew after touring for that book, which was incredibly painful, (laughs) even more painful than writing it, um, I knew that I never wanted to write nonfiction again. But I equally sort of discovered that the things that I care most about as a writer are the things that feel unfair to me or that make me angry in the world. So those are kind of the stories that I'm always drawn to tell, where I feel like people aren't paying attention to the right things or or that a story may be the the narrative as in American dirt the the sort of social narrative that we're used to hearing is so flat and unnuanced and unhelpful and I love the idea of giving a more full accounting of what's actually going on with these people on an intimate level so that we can stop potentially thinking about migrants in terms of like policy and start thinking of them in terms of humanity. And it aff- directly feeds into the genre of this novel, which is not quite a thriller in that it's not it's not sort of actually about law enforcement and the thrill of the hunt, is it? It's about right what goes on in the people who are in those situations. Yes, and that's always, always my lens. And I think I have my cousins Julie and Robin to thank for that for you know positioning me in such a way I was 16 when they were murdered and it was an absolutely formative experience in my life not just as a writer but as a human being that I always tend to step back from a story and say to myself but what's really going on I don't believe what I necessarily read in the headlines I want to access the the human truth of victimhood behind whatever the splashy front line is. And there is so much written already about the cartels and law enforcement, the sort of macho side of the story in Mexico and the borderlands. And there is very little currently in English written about the human cost and the cost in particular for women and children on the flip side of that violence. 
But it was also a thing that made me incredibly nervous for a long time because I'm not a migrant. I'm not Mexican. Um, and I didn't know if I had the right to tell this story. So I was resistant for a long time, which is why it took me five years. <laughs> um, what changed your mind? Can I tell you this without crying? Um, my dad died. Um, a week before the 2016 presidential election, my father passed away. So I researched this book for, you know, three or four solid years. I wrote and wrote and wrote terrible drafts. And the thing that was holding me back the whole time was this hesitation, this resistance to fully inhabiting the skin of a woman that I am not. And on October 24, 2016, my father passed away very suddenly very unexpectedly and then a week later we had the presidential elections and the sort of um collapse of decency in the national conversation in the united states really put an exclamation point on my grief and on my sense that sort of all the paternal goodness ha had gone out of the world at once and in that I was so bereft. And in that grief, I like stopped caring <laughs> about kind of about everything. Like I stopped worrying. I realized, you know, I think a very big grief sometimes can make you brave. And in that it makes you realize like what really matters. And I discovered that I kind of didn't care what anyone would say about this book and about my whether or not I had the right to tell this story. So in my sort of <laughs> desolation, I just thought, I don't care. I'm willing to take it on the chin. It doesn't matter what anybody says about it. My dad would be really proud of this book, of my undertaking of telling this story. I have done the research, and I just have to tell it. Do you know, it's so interesting you say that. I hadn't heard that story before, but there is something about the way you describe Luca's memory of his father, which is so intimate and so delicately drawn yeah. that I am absolutely not surprised to say that that's the experience that has informed yeah. that. I really think like, you know, in the this book kind of went crazy in the United States. We had a big auction, a three-day auction with nine different publishing houses bidding on it. And in that moment of my career... I was so sad that my dad wasn't there to see it initially because he was my biggest fan. And then I quickly realized that that moment would not have happened in my career without losing my dad because this book is 100% the result of that loss. It's almost like his scent is in it. It's like the scent of Luca's dad is in it and yes. the scent of your dad is in Thank it. Thank you for saying that. It's the, I mean, the fact is that these characters are grieving a horrific, traumatic experience. And my grief is on every page of this book. You know, I was living the experience of a very deep grief in real time as I was writing this book. So I do think that their grief was my grief. And in large part, I think that's what people are responding to in this book. Janine Cummings. American Dirt is published by Tinder Press in the UK and Flatiron Books in the US. After the break, we'll be talking about how pain can provoke some of the most profound literature. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. The winner of last week's T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize was the 52-year-old British Trinidadian writer Roger Robinson who stunned a thousand-strong audience at London's Royal Festival Hall into silence with a poem about the premature birth of his son. Let's take a listen now. Greece. That year, we danced to the green bleeps on screens. My son had come early, just the one kilogram of him, all big head, bulging eyes, and blue veins. On the ward, I met Greece a Jamaican senior nurse who sang pop songs on her shift like they were hymns. Your son too feisty. He just pull off all the breeding mass them. People spoke of her in half tones down these carbolic halls, and even doctors gave way to her when it comes to putting a line into my son's nylon thread of a vein. She'd warned junior doctors with trembling hands, may only letting you try twice. <laughs> On her night shift, she'd pull my son's incubator into her room, no matter the tangled confusion of wires and machine. When the consultant told my wife and I on morning rounds that he's not sure my son will live, and if he lives, he might never leave the hospital, she pulled us quickly aside and said, him have no right to tell you that, just raw so. Another consultant tells the nurses to stop feeding a baby who will soon die. And she commands her loyal nurses to feed him. Feed him. No baby must dead with a hungry belly. And she sit in the dark, rocking that well-fed baby, held to her bosom, slowly humming the melody of Pharrell, happy. <laughs> and I think if by some chance I am not here and my son's life should flicker, then Grace, she should be the one. How does this extraordinary poem fit into the rest of his work, Claire? Well, Ro Roger's a really interesting um, figure because he's somebody who is much talked about, um, but he hasn't actually published that much. He's only published four collections of poetry. And so, so he's not somebody who, can, who has a huge body of work from which you can quote. But the, in this collection, A Portable Paradise, which won the T.S. Eliot Prize, um, gives an, a sense of, his, of the breadth in which he writes. It, it has five sections, and the, first, the opening section is about Grenfell Tower, 
it, it's a sort of close up on the survivors and the people who died um, in, in that terrible catastrophe. Um, and then it moves through to a, to a fifth section, which is largely about his son. And he makes it work within the structure of the poems in a way that you can see in Grace. You know, for example, the name Grace. Grace is the name of the nurse cradling that that child and I asked him it's was her name really Grace it seems too good to be true yeah, really it's it she's, no he, she is called Grace so so <laughs> the universe telling him to write that poem right there oh uh, well you know uh, I suppose as a poet he's noticing things which then he can wind into a poem and in the winding of it into a poem it is almost a sort of prayer and I, I defy anybody to listen to that poem and not have a tear in their eye <laughs> I've read it a dozen times now and every time I, I feel moved by it and I and and so so I think that is is one of the things he's he's really good at doing. So so uh, Sean, that part of the tradition of the prize is this grand gathering of the night before, where all the poets give a taste of their collections. And the mystery's always been how much impact that has on the final verdict. Yeah. Well, so I spoke to John Burnside, uh, the poet who uh, was chairing the T. S. Eliot Prize this year, and he was saying that um, when they were meeting to. D- talk about the merits of all the books on the shortlist this year um their last meeting they all went away sort of having made a passionate case for various different books and not being able to come to any agreement and they sort of all split and they uh, had all this sort of specific titles that they were championing and then there was the reading on uh sunday night and then uh on the monday afterwards uh they were all unanimous in selecting roger which makes you think then that perhaps his reading and the his ability to perform poetry did actually have some sort of impact. And John swore to me that it absolutely didn't. And I was like, yeah, but really. <laughs> well, and the similar thing happened when Ocean Vuong yes. carried off all the gongs. And, and, you know, he went up on stage and you just thought, you cannot but be yeah. m- moved. Yeah, but it's not just poetry, is it, though? I mean, often some of the most successful, some of the most powerful memoirs are also powered by kind of grief and trauma. Well, yeah, just last year we had uh, Rick Samada and uh, talking about his memoir, I Never Said I Love You, and um, the uh, also Megan Felch-Roper um, with her book, uh, Unfollow, um, all about her time in Westboro Baptist Church um, and her decision to leave and leave her family behind. Um, there were two really uh, sort of very emotional accounts of personal trauma and that uh, I kind of got the sense of both of them, I did the interviews for both of them, that it is still very raw despite having gone through the uh, the process of putting it down on the page and maybe um, you maybe think that that might be a, a cathartic thing um, but uh, maybe it was but maybe talking about it so much when you're sort of forced to go on the publicity tour <laughs> and talk to people on podcasts maybe that doesn't necessarily help but um, the rawness of that experience kind of comes through on the page that's part yeah, of it yeah and they're both fantastic yeah incredible books um, and then other books that we've also uh, I always like to bang on about the trauma cleaner in the name trauma uh, by uh, Sarah <laughs> Krasnerstein um, which is not a memoir but it is a biography of a woman that has a lot of trauma in her life and then deals with trauma in her day-to-day life um, and I guess um, Sarah put herself very intimately into that book as well so um, it, yeah it, you sort of you get the sense of how the writer is impacted all throughout directly by the story that is being told um, and also the red parts by Maggie Nelson I love Maggie Nelson um, and that's all about her aunt's murder which is a, 
an obvious um, account of, uh, of of terrible family trauma. And, and the same logic applies for fiction as well. I mean, you know, it's kind of the raw power of, of trauma can come through whatever the the the, the, the genre. Well, yeah, Claire mentioned Ocean Wong before, um, and I guess the, like his novel on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, which uh, we also spoke to him about the, on the podcast uh, last year, um, is about transgenerational uh, trauma, so about about a son and his mother and his grandmother um in the aftermath of the vietnam war and moving to america um which is all lines up very much with ocean's own uh autobiography i was also thinking of uh, roxanne gay um her novel an untamed state uh, which was uh, uh, about a young girl being gang raped and uh, that is also part of roxanne's own story she was gang raped as a young girl what is the line between an author doing that for their own story and using fiction to look at trauma in other people's lives whether it is real trauma or uh you know historical trauma or or, or sort of fictional invented trauma because as we said earlier in the program there's been something of a debate on this issue surrounding janine cumming obviously there was a very big marketing push behind american dirt um and uh, there has been some debate about uh, Janine who uh, self-identifies as white and Latina, her grandmother was Puerto Rican, um, whether she uh, has the sort of right to tell this story about uh, Mexican migrants into America. Which is why that was the first question I asked her, but, but you know, partly because I could see that this was going to happen yeah. this debate this is what always happens the do writers have the right to tell a story that's outside their personal biographical experience yes personally i think the only question is whether they do it well or they do it badly yes and if they do it well then they can do whatever they want if they do it badly then they shouldn't be writing writing anything not not only that story <laughs> yeah and so with i guess like that that's that um janine herself has spoken about this before and she said um in other interviews that as long as it's done with care and sensitivity, you can write whatever you want. And I think a lot of authors would be resistant to being told that they can't do this or do that. But I guess when you have got what is being touted as a seven-figure publishing deal um, and getting a lot of support from your publishers and stuff, I think rather than this being... This is currently being channeled into a lot of personal and quite vicious criticism of Janine and whether it's actually something that should be leveled at the publishing industry as a whole, because people are saying, well, where are the Mexican writers getting yeah. these seven-figure deals? And I think that's a valid argument. I don't think Janine is the pro the cause or even the instigator of such a problem. Yeah, and you, I mean, the, the result of that really unfortunate result is that you get people reviewing the hype rather than mm. reviewing the novel. And that every single review has talked about the seven-figure deal the blurbs from John John Grisham and Stephen King and Don Winslow and yeah, well, we mentioned them ourselves just yeah, up top yeah and I guess that people are kind of right to sort of say I mean there are obviously Mexican writers out there there are very acclaimed writers and they win prizes and you know there's Yuri Herrera and there's Valeria Luis there are also people who don't get published yes quite right and you know that's a, a fair people, point but yes. it's not Janine's but fault it's not Janine's <laughs> fault and I think to sort of say to her that Therefore, she had no right to write this book because she's taken an opportunity away from someone. I don't think that's true. So, like recently, there was an interview with Bernadine Evaristo where she was uh, talking on stage at a festival, and she sort of laughed in the face of the idea that 
writers could only sort of stay in their lane and she was like no absolutely not you, you know everyone can write whatever they want to write as long as they do it well and they do it responsibly um and they do it sensitively um regardless of whatever community it is any author has the right to do that and i sort of firmly agree with that um and i think really whether you feel an author has done uh, a good job really does just come down to personal taste and so i guess the arguments these people are making are valid they are perhaps doing it a little bit more personally and viciously than uh, i would say is necessary um but you know people sort of talking about steinberg being a cultural appropriator um you know it's just frankly i sort of i think it, it is veering on ridiculous like mm. the skill that steinberg wrote with and the care that he wrote with and the research he did for his books i sort of feel like um it, it, this is a conversation that is veering into hysteria and i think we may need to sort of take a step back a little bit it does a lot of the the counter arguments rely on somebody saying this is my experience this and my experience was different to the experience that is being being um described in this book but that's one person's experience i think it might have been bernardine Bristow, who who won, just won the Booker with Girl, Woman, Other, which has a huge range of perspectives, said, well, you're only in your own head. Mm. You can only have your perspective. Who's to say that every Mexican mm. feel, feels like that a, a particular Mexican person who's criticising the description of Mexicans in this novel? Yes, well, and, and, and that's the thing as well, that um, at, at the back of the book, she acknowledges some Mexican writers that she um, sort of uh, extensively... Uh, read to understand Mexican history and also um, even had direct relationships with some and they fully endorsed the book so I sort of feel like trying to put a blanket label on something and say well this is the Mexican experience and that's not what's in this book I think is extremely reductive and doesn't actually add anything to and the as often as very often actually a lot of the criticism often comes from people who haven't actually read it you know I think I think Guys, read the book before you criticise. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very telling that a lot of this conversation started in December and the book is out in January. And quite, under quite strict embargo as well. And so with that definitively settled, that's all for this week. <laughs> Next week is a Costa special with novelists Jonathan Coe and Sarah Collins. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee... And me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Apoku Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. <laughs>